today's program made possible by patrons like you. Welcome to where we celebrate music from the movies. From the golden age to present day, we've got it all covered. We talk to those in the entertainment industry and find out about their favorite scores. You found the podcast, What's the Score? I'm your host, Frank R. Wilson. So sit back, relax, grab a popcorn, and let's see what we'll be hearing today. Recognize that music? It's a favorite of our guest today. She's a professor, an award-winning author, and also an expert on gender and feminism in action films. Now, to be fair, not just any action films, but the films from the James Bond franchise. She's written several books on James Bond and his women, and she continues to write today with the new projects coming on the horizon, which we'll talk about. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Lisa Funnel to the program. Hello. Thank you for having me. Oh, my pleasure, Lisa. I look, I've really looked forward to this. Um, I've, I've ad- admired you from afar with uh, some <laughs> of your appearances on other uh, podcasts and those sorts of things about James Bond. And I thought, what an interesting guest to maybe have on the program to talk about the music of James Bond because you perhaps you maybe you have a different perspective on it. So uh, I appreciate you joining us today. Um, as I do with all my guests, I always like to find out a little bit about them. So I'd be curious if you could tell me a little bit about yourself, uh, uh, yeah, growing up, uh, you know, family, siblings, uh, what your mom and dad did for livings, uh, you know, just kind of things that kind of led to growing up before you went to college. If you could kind of give us a little background on that, that'd be great. So I am Canadian. I grew up in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, also known as the Hammer. Okay. My dad was an elementary school principal and my mom was an elementary school teacher who specialized in primary education, so the lower grades. I do have a brother. His name is Dave. He is my best friend. He's mm-hmm. a year older than me. And so we grew up very close together. We're still very close today. And in truth, all of my family is in education. My brother's a kindergarten teacher, and so I grew up knowing the value of education. I loved going to school. I was that kid who went to summer school for fun, (laughs) (laughs) right? Like other kids were playing sports, and I wanted to go and do advanced programs because part of me is the fact that I'm an avid learner, and I love to learn about the world and and ideas, and I like to formulate my own ideas and opinions. And In other words, you're, you're, you're a real nerd. I am a huge nerd. Um, and, and it's interesting because I think that that is something that is so beautiful. And I always encourage people to nerd it out, like find something that you're passionate about, connect with it and go all in. And I always have a, a huge respect for people who just love things or know things or can do things that I don't 
right? And so yeah. if you're really into, like, I love I love Star Wars, but there's people who know so many details about Star, Star Wars that I'm in awe. I'm like, how do you know these things? Tell me more. <laughs> Let me learn from you. And I just think fandom in a general sense and the way that we nerd out to the things that make our, our, our pulse race, I think that's a beautiful thing and something that we've needed during this pandemic, right? As we've yeah. been waiting for scientists to help us out and the medical professionals for doing all of the great work that they're, that they're doing, we've connected and rerouted ourselves in pop culture and the things that make us feel uh, safe, secure, whole, nostalgic, just keeping us grounded during this tough time. Yeah. Now, I'm curious because of the way you, you uh, described your family. I, I have to ask, did was your father actually supervising or over your mother as an educator? Oh gosh, no, they did not work in the same school. And it's, it's interesting because my mom retired when she had my brother and myself. And so I really benefited from having a dedicated stay at home mom. Um, and of course my dad was very dedicated as well, but the two of them still talk about educational policy. And I, I call my parents every day. Um, I miss them during this pandemic. I haven't seen them in a year and a half. So I call them at the same time every day and we'll talk about educational policies and invariably the two of them do not agree. And they'll just start <laughs> arguing and debating. And it's a beautiful thing to see, you know, that that positive dialogue, that constructive dialogue that happens in a relationship. And so, yeah, I, I think they're both great. I love it. That's great. That's great. <laughs> you know, I, I, gosh, I mean, it, um, do you, you don't have any, you know, at least to my ears, you don't have any kind of a Canadian accent whatsoever. When did you become so Americanized? <laughs> I don't know. It's interesting. So I play on volleyball teams and apparently when I get animated, when I get really excited, then some of the Canadian accent comes out. I don't know if I said that with an accent. That was close. Yep. <laughs> but they, wait, they will let me be the one on the team to call it out. And then they'll just look at me and start laughing. <laughs> so it's it's there. Um, it's it's not very deep or pronounced. But it, it, it's there when I get excited and animated. You just can't help it. Like the local just flows out. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, 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 I, I didn't mention it in the intro, but for, for those that are interested, you're uh, you're actually located in Oklahoma now at the, uh, I think at university of Oklahoma, right. Or, or yes. Oklahoma. okay. Uh, that's gotta be a lot different than Canada. I would think. Yes. Oklahoma, <laughs> USA, and Ontario, Canada are very different. I will say this. Oklahoma has some really, really nice people. Oh, and yeah. so like the friendliness that I'm used to in Canada is definitely comparable to the friendliness uh, and the warmth that I've received here from my colleagues and from my friends. I've got great neighbors. Um, our houses just got hit with a huge hailstorm. Um, and so just seeing the community come together, everybody standing outside being like, what do we do? Who do we call? And just lamenting collectively. It was actually like a very positive community building experience. But Oklahoma is, I would say, politically very different from where I come from. And so okay. I think that's been more of an adjustment uh, than anything else. Sure. Yeah. But it's nice to know that you can come together in a situation where everybody's kind of, you know, suffering and those sorts of things. That people are people and it's, you know, we want to help each other. So that's, that's nice to hear. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, now, as people will find out as we uh, kind of go through this uh, program, you're 
really into the James Bond films. And so a lot of the things that we're going to focus on today will, uh, as, as it pertains to music, will uh, pertain to music from the Bond films. And I was delighted to see that one of the things that you chose was what is called the fanfare, which is uh, from the film of You Do a Kill, written by John Barry. Tell me a little bit about uh, why you wanted to choose that amongst one of your favorites. So... I know A View to a Kill does not get a lot of love, but it has a great <laughs> soundtrack to it. And anytime I watch this film and anytime I see this particular moment where fanfare comes in, I get goosebumps on my body. And so basically to set it up, so Roger Moore, this is his last James Bond film. And people have commented that James Bond is is older and he's not as 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 limber. And let me tell you, if you're his age, you might not be as limber as you were, you know, <laughs> 15 years beforehand. When you, when you started doing these, these types of actions. And the film has at its core like a really cool villainous duo. There's Mayday and there's Zorin, played by Grace Jones and Christopher Walken. And to me, they're the most compelling figures of the film. And yeah. so you have this moment where they've set, I don't know if it's City Hall on fire. And so Bond picks up um, Stacey Sutton and he climbs down um, the, the ladder on a fire truck. And when we think about action filmmaking, there's nothing really dynamic about watching somebody come down a ladder. Like there, it's not as if, you know, bodies are in motion and, right. and punches are uh, flying or things like that. And yet carrying somebody on your shoulders down a ladder is, is a pretty stressful and strenuous thing to do. And what I love about fanfare is that you have this music that makes me believe that this is the most heroic thing I've ever seen in my life. Uh. You have this slow melody um, of A View to a Kill, the title track co-written between John Barry and Duran Duran, and the use of brass uh, to slowly play this melody codes it as, as heroic. And then the strings pop in and the strings are telling me this is a really big deal of what we're seeing. And so I feel as though this is like classic John Barry saying, we've got this heroic action. I'm going to make you know that, it's, that it is heroic, even though it's just James Bond walking down a ladder. And when I think about like music, if you were to say, hey, Lisa, I'm going to introduce you, you know, on this stage to give a talk. I want it to be this song. Like it's just <laughs> that commanding, like here I am world. <laughs> and I'm going to let my audience know, we talked before we started the program. She said, well, I don't know anything about music. Well, let me tell you something. She just demonstrated she knows a lot about music. <laughs> she knows a lot about music just from based on her description of this cue, which I thought was fabulous. Absolutely fabulous. Let's let's have a listen for ourselves. This is uh, from the uh, film A View to a Kill. Uh, the cue is called Fanfare, and it's written by John Barry. <laughs>
Now, wh- what I'm curious about is, and we didn't get into it yet, um, as you started in your college years and, 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 you know, into your higher education and kind of what you wanted to do with your life, um, you decided to, to, to study women and gender studies. And so I'm kind of curious what, what went into your decision to, uh, to take that path and want to study those, that particular subject? So I did my undergraduate studies at McMaster University, and I was part of the arts and science program. And it was this specialized program where you basically got this comprehensive interdisciplinary education. And I was minoring in religious studies as I was doing it. And so I felt as though it was just a list of things that I was just crossing off. I'm like, biologist, don't want to do that. Physicist, can't do that. (laughs) Physics was my Achilles heel. That is not my forte. And I started going through and I was surrounded by a lot of students who were going into med school. And what I found was that what I wanted more than anything else was to want something as much as they wanted it. I wanted to feel that drive and that passion, that hunger to pursue Mm -hmm. something. I have the mental capabilities to kind of do a lot of things. But for me, I'm such a passion-driven individual. I wanted to find my niche. And so I was interested in religious studies because I was interested in the stories that we that were being told um, throughout the years and in different places, different cultures about who we are, how do we understand the universe, how do we understand, you know, who we are, how we relate to nature, how do we deal with horrible things that happen in our lives. Mm -hmm. But I realized that I didn't want to learn multiple languages in order to study these (laughs) texts because languages are also not my forte. (laughs) I mean, I I feel as though I've like barely mastered English and I'm like, I think I've reached my, the the peak of of, of where we're going to go linguistically here. And so I ended up uh, working with a great professor, uh, Mary O'Connor, and we came up with this project about studying gender, so studying masculinity, but I studied masculinity in Arnold Schwarzenegger films. And so I wrote this double unit honors thesis, doing this whole background on uh, gender studies, doing this whole background on um, masculinity and gender in action. And I was a big Schwarzenegger fan because I love action films. Yeah. And so I ended up from there deciding to do a master's degree in popular culture at Brock University. And I ended up working with uh, someone named Jim Leach. I took his cultural theory class and he was teaching it on the James Bond franchise. And this is early 2000s. And this is just when James Bond studies as a field of studies as it was coming to its forefront. This is the first wave, first generation. He's part of this wave, writing about and thinking about and conceptualizing about James Bond. And he encouraged me to do my master's thesis on the Bond girl. And he's like, people have not written on this. So I ended up doing this quantitative content analysis of the Bond films only up to 2002 because the Craig era hadn't started at that point. Um, And I did this huge like topography of... Of, of the women of Bond and, and talking about the different waves and the different phases that they were going through. And that literally just put me on a path. I wrote my PhD on Chinese warrior women because I love Michelle Yeoh and I was interested in how she became as awesome as she did. She's featured in Tomorrow Never Dies. And then I just continued studying, researching, and learning about women and gender in film. And yes, I do a lot on James Bond, but I also publish and teach courses on women in action films in a general sense. And and I'm thinking, you know, uh, being an older gentleman as I are, as I am, uh, Mm -hmm. I've seen quite an evolution in how, in particularly in action films, how, 
I don't know how to say this, how women are treated or viewed. Mm-hmm. It's obviously gone through a huge change over the, over the decades. Um, did, did you find it, was it difficult to kind of watch some of the older ones? Uh, you know, even the older Schwarzenegger films or, or any others, did did you kind of cringe a little bit and say, "Oh my gosh, did we used to accept that?" I mean, I'm just kind of curious. Yeah, it's a challenging thing because you have like Lisa as a human being is going to act and react, <laughs> and then yeah. you have Lisa as a professor who wants to understand why I'm acting and reacting. And so I never shy away from my feelings. If I'm bored, if I'm happy, if I'm sad, if I'm repulsed, I use that as a stepping stone to try to understand why I'm feeling that way. And it's great to actually trace the evolution of women in film because you can see things that we might have thought in the 80s and the 90s. There was all this talk about women performing masculinity, and and there was a lot of criticism of these women in the way that they were um, muscular and they were overtly mm. masculine with behaviors and mannerisms. And then you saw the rise of uh, early 2000s, things like Charlie's Angels, and you saw a lot of feminist scholars go back and be like, Sarah Connor, ooh, maybe that was an interesting way. So sometimes hindsight can allow us to understand the value and the valuing. But what I love is this desire to have women carve out a place in this very masculine space of action and really send up the message that women can occupy this place. But I will say this, and I, I always say this, it's not enough. Like most of the women that we see on screen tend to be white women. And I want to see women of color on screen. And I love diversity in all shapes, sizes, forms, colors, identities. And so what I really want in these spaces of action are stories about a variety of people focusing on different elements that can be considered heroic. We don't all have to be the same. And I would love for our media culture to really just push out that idea of like difference is a great thing and you can be heroic in many different ways because people in real life are heroic in yeah. many different ways. Yeah. Well, and in, in defense of the Bond films, which and we'll talk some more about that as time goes along, it's kind of interesting, you know, from 1977 in the late 70s, they were kind of, you know, they had, they had recognized there needed to be a shift and had two strong women characters. You know, maybe not as strong as one might like these days, but I mean, at the time, that was a big deal that these these women were essentially equal to to Bond. Would you, would you agree or tell me about that? Yeah. So I would say in the. I actually like the women of the 60s. I think that there's like a lot of diversity in the 60s. And what you saw in the 70s was just this broader sort of backlash to feminist gains. And you saw the Bond franchise trying to renegotiate, like, how do we understand women? But by the time they got to the 1970s, they were like, you know, we should have a woman who's comparable to Bond as an agent. And so you do see women in the late 70s who are smart and intelligent and capable yeah. and competent, and Bond needs them in the mission. And I, this is the thing that I will say, talking to fans of the franchise, the stronger women are presented in the films, oftentimes the more fans actually like these women. Like there's a reason why they're there. They're there to help Bond, to aid Bond, and they tend to make the films just more exciting and, and appealing rather than Bond simply dragging a love interest along. And I think this was sort of a, a tip and a turn back to that notion of having strong, capable, competent women. And again, in a variety of different ways, it doesn't have to, not everyone's going to be an agent. Not everyone's going to be an intellectual. I like when there's diversity in the women that I see on screen. Yeah. And, 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 and you, you made me think about it too. I mean, it, I can think back to several of the films in the sixties 
even in the 60s where you mentioned intelligent and smart, you know, and, and capable, there were plenty of women that were, you know, fit that description. Uh, yeah, they were eye candy to be to be sure. Yes, they were. But they weren't any shrinking violets. I mean, these were people, these were women that were sharp, smart, and kind of knew what they were doing. Would, would you agree? Yeah. And a couple of them actually saved Bond. You look at yeah. Tatiana Romanova in From Russia oh, yeah. with Love and Dominer Durval in Thunderball. In both those films, you have the woman shooting. Uh, one shoots um, a hench person and one shoots the archvillain, saving Bond in the process. And I Good like point. the before before the films became really formulaic and rigid, you saw a lot of flexibility of, uh, about who women could be and what women could do and having these almost like redemptive narratives. These are women who are they have character growth and they change and they're able to claim some space and some power, even though both those women are not considered to be agents and both those women are not necessarily considered to be like empowered action women in sort mm-hmm. of the traditional sense. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Good point. Um, I, I must compliment you. Uh, another choice that you made for a cue that you wanted to play is, is happens to be one of my favorites as well. And as my listeners know, I'm a huge I mean, huge John Barry fan. He's just like, he couldn't do anything wrong. However, however, I do recognize some other composers occasionally. And this is one cue that that I would say is, is amongst my favorites as well. Uh, you had chose a cue that's called Vesper from Casino Royale, written by uh, David Arnold. Tell me, tell me a little bit about why you wanted to choose that amongst your favorites. So there's a lot of reasons. First of all, I love David Arnold and what he did for the James Bond franchise. He stepped in at Tomorrow Never Dies and he had a background in John Barry. He understood John Barry. He was a fan of John Barry. He did some musical um, composing and, 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 and development in relation to John Barry and John Barry recommended him. And so he is somebody who understood the sound of Bond, the way that instrumentation should work um, and the importance of really strong swelling um, melodies in defining key characters and key, key aspects. And so for me, the Vesper theme is important because Vesper Lynn is the first woman to get her own theme as a Bond girl. Uh, now, there's an Electra theme that came out, but Archvillains always get their own musical themes. This mm-hmm. is the first Bond girl, love interest, woman of Bond to get her own theme. And uh-huh. when I think about Vesper Lynn, I always think about um, Irene Adler and Sherlock Holmes. So in the sh- world of Sherlock Holmes, Irene Adler was considered the woman for Sherlock. Uh, she's sort of this tragic figure, but she got under Sherlock's skin. She became a part of him. Um, and then, you know, after she was gone, Sherlock was never the same. And that's the same thing for Vesper Lynn. She's not presented as a Bond girl to Bond. She's presented as being the woman to Bond. And so she has her own theme to represent her importance to the world of Bond. And it is this light piano melody, which is sort of very gentle. It emphasizes her vulnerability in the film. I mean, she's somebody who's being manipulated uh, by, by a variety of different factors. And then you have this sort of swelling of romantic strings that really to me suggests the romance that's going to happen. But the theme actually ends on sort of like a, like it, it almost turns into a minor key, which represents like, this is not going to work out well. It's not going to work out <laughs> well for her. It's not going to work out well for Bond. But I will say this. 
spoiler, she doesn't make it to the end of the film. <laughs> By the time we get to Quantum of Solace, the next film, Bond is still in love with Vesper Lind. And so you have these moments where Bond is still connected to her. And you have the woman of that film, Camille Montez, telling him, like, you're still in love with another woman. We can't be together. And so you see Bond trying to just remain connected to Vesper Lynn, and he drinks the Vesper martinis. He tries to get drunk on them. He's trying to consume her and have her be inside of him. And then when he's thinking about her, you have the Vesper theme playing. This is in a different film, and yet the memory of Vesper Lynn looms large, and it is this music that is representing the melancholy that Bond is feeling as he's mourning the loss of her and trying to get, get over her. So I think it's a really important theme across two films, but I also think that it's just a brilliant, sad piece of music that represents her as a woman, as a figure, and as um, probably the first love of, of James Bond. Ladies and gentlemen, you just heard someone who says, I know nothing about music, and yet, <laughs> and yet did a brilliant job in explaining what you're about to hear. I, I, I mean that, seriously, Lisa, brilliant. And, and I must tell you, too, it, it connected with me because I can remember as a as a young man, I won't say boy, I think I was a man at the time when I read the book. I mean, I, I kind of fell in love with Vesper even just through the book. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and, and when I heard this music, when, when, you know, when a legitimate Casino Royale was done, not the spoof. Yeah, I mean, it, it moved me as well. So, and, and you described it perfectly, absolutely perfectly. Let's have a listen for ourselves. The cue is called Vesper. It's from the film Casino Royale, and it's written by composer David Arnold. We'll get back to our program in a minute. This program is done for the love of film and film music, plain and simple. However, it does take a huge investment in time and in fees for me to make the program work for you. I don't sell commercial time and don't really want to on this program. Rather, I'm kind of like a, a public broadcasting station. I need support from listeners like you. 
For as little as $3 a month, you can help me uh, uh, offset the time spent in putting the program together. Or maybe you just think of it as leaving a tip in the tip jar. Either way, if you can join up, uh, there will be bonuses, like an additional 10 to 15 minute segment with our guest every week. Well, we'll play additional cues as well as ask uh, some extra questions. And it's going to be only available to patrons. How do you sign up? Well, it's simple. You go to patreon.com slash what's the score, and that's all one word. That's Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash what's the score. Check it out. We'd be grateful for your support. That's patreon.com. We've talked a lot about James Bond, but we really haven't uh, explored exactly how it all got started. I mean, how does, I mean, for the most part, most of us, you know, especially guys like me in the fifties or in our fifties or sixties, it's, it was a guy thing. You know, every, all the guys like James Bond, but and maybe the women, women, women wouldn't admit it, but you know, basically it was kind of a guy fan thing. And yet you seem to be a, a very passionate fan of the franchise and so I'm kind of curious, how did that, how did that develop? I watched the films with my dad growing up. He loved James Bond and he shared with his children his passion for it. Um, and I have a really great interview with my dad. I have my own, had, have, I'm not sure if there's going to be more episodes, but there's an episode where I interview my dad about um, our connection. That. Yeah, it's on License to Critique. I think it's episode 12 or 13. Uh, but what we did was we had Sunday night dinners in front of the TV. This is in the 80s and in the 90s. And this was a big deal for us. We were not allowed to eat in front of the television. And so we would pick <laughs> films that like the family could watch. And my dad and I would always pick the Bond films. My brother, he's kind of like, okay, well, James Bond, sure. And my mom, she loves Sean Connery. So that was never an issue or a problem for her. <laughs> but it really became a source of connection for my dad and I to watch these films and connect with them. And I will say this. My dad and I still to this day talk about James Bond. That's what happens during our phone calls. It might be educational policy, but oftentimes we talk about James Bond, the work that I'm doing, different thoughts. If I'm on a podcast, I'll tell him the topic and we just sort of discuss our ideas. And it's a point of connection between um, the two of us. And I've talked to a lot of fans who have these types of experiences. Oftentimes it's a parent, um, maybe a sibling or a close friend who introduced them. And it, then it becomes a point of connection uh, based on shared passions. Yeah. And I think that's incredibly important. So for me, a lot of bond is tied up with this nostalgia. And as I'm sitting here talking to you, I just sort of turn my sights just to the right. And I have some I love collecting movies. Um, I don't like this digital era. But at the bottom, yeah. 
I have the VHS copies that we used to watch together. Those uh-huh. are considered my prized possessions. And if we ever have like a like a flooding warning, the first thing I do is grab a box, pick those up, and put them to high ground because <laughs> those are mine. Like I don't know if I'll ever watch them again because they're probably fragile at this point. But to me, they represent just a connection to my dad and yeah. to these sort of these eight, 1980s, 1990s great moments that we had together. So so yeah. So, and do, do you, you guys agree on most of the things you talk about or is, are there disagreements about you know, <laughs> the films or whatever? I'm, I'm just kind of curious. I mean, is it, do you have some, you know, interesting spirited discussions? There are some spirited discussions. Um, I think the, the. The thing that he does not like, he does not like the Daniel Craig era. There is no love for it. Anytime huh. we talk about it, or if, if there's ever anything being recorded, I have to tell him, dad, be nice. <laughs> and there's people who are listening <laughs> who like the Craig era because he just doesn't like the direction. He loves the fun, episodic, energetic, full of gadgets and, and quitty whips type of, of, of Bond films. And those are my um. preference. Too. I mean, we are very kind of like funny, jokey type of family. So that just feeds into our funny bones. So he's not a fan of the Daniel Craig era. um, And I understand where he's coming from. So I just sort of let him let him express his point of view. And and he's like, am I wrong? And I'm like, your opinion's your opinion. Some people disagree, but I understand and I love you through it, dad. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know what? And and, and being a being someone as a, uh, let me think here, what is a seven-year-old sitting in, you know, in the second row of a cinema watching Goldfinger, and, and people, some of my listeners will know the story. Uh, you know, I, it was just by chance. I mean, it was not a something that was desired. I just happened, you know, we just happened to stumble upon it. Mm-hmm. Um, I just loved it. I just, as a seven-year-old, I felt, you know, you see that golden girl painted on the bed? <laughs> I'm his <laughs> Um But... Uh, where am I going with this? I'm trying to remember where where was childhood nostalgia. Well, yeah, that and 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 well, uh, yeah, the the Daniel Craig films. It's interesting. I have mixed emotions about it as well. I loved. I mean, absolutely loved Casino Royale Mm -hmm. because it stuck to the book for the most part. I loved that. That was great. But it was like, okay, let's move along. Yes. Let's get back to the formula. And so I, I, I kind of understand where your dad's coming from. Uh, and, and yet, you know, I can kind of see why people, you know, they like the the drama, the backstories, all the, you know. It's the, too the much. Come on. It's huh? too much. They're, they've, they've taken this. Like, <laughs> well, look, I think it is. Yeah. I'm, like, all right. Let's just admit it. It is. It's too much. I'm sick of it. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I saw Spectre and I'm like, what are we doing here? This. No, I want a standalone narrative. Let Bond do his job and be a hero. Like, let's he doesn't need Brofeld. Like, let's have some fun. Let's. Yes. <laughs> and the thing with Daniel Craig is Daniel Craig as an individual he does have a sense of humor and I oh, want to give him the, the opportunity to shine. And he brought in Phoebe Waller-Bridge for no time to die for a reason. Cause he's like, Oh my <laughs> gosh, inject some humor and life into this because I think that he just, he deserves to have that type of a film. So I'm throwing it out there. I have a lot of hopes for no time to die. And just, I think, you know, Casino Royale was really high up there and I think there was the goal to just keep replicating Casino Royale instead of where do we go from here? Pivot, pivot, yeah. pivot. <laughs> like, give, give me some pivoting instead of yeah. just being stuck in the stairwell. Yeah, so, fair enough. Yep. Yeah. Yep. yep. Well, um, I, I was intrigued by the, the next choice that you had for a, a cue to mention. 
this is from the film Octopussy, and, and the cue is called Matt, That's My Little Octopussy. So I, yeah. I yeah, written by John Barry. You kind of tell me a little bit about why you wanted to uh, include that amongst uh, one of your favorites. So it's probably no surprise for people who know me. I grew up watching Octopussy. And I think about it. I am growing up in the 1980s, and my heroes were Wonder Woman on television and Princess Leia in Star Wars. Yeah. And so when I would watch Octopussy, I was always inspired by having this group of women who were smart entrepreneurs and could protect themselves. And I always... I always felt empowered by that type of an image and that type of a message. So there's a lot of love in me for this movie Octopussy and showing me the constructive potential that exists for Makes women. Sense. There's many different pathways. Makes what sense. I, yeah, what I find interesting about so I love the song because it's it's sort of this romantic sweeping adaptation of All Time High, which is the title track. And there's strings and I believe there's some clarinet. It's highly romantic. And it's sending us this message that Bond and Magda are making love. And it's kind of this red herring because she's not his primary love interest at all. When Octopussy, played by Maude Adams, comes into the forefront, Magda just sort of goes into the backdrop. She doesn't die. <laughs> She's still part of the film. So I always find it interesting that you have this hyper romantic track, but not for the primary love interest. Mm -hmm. And I will say this, the, the way that the scene ends is like on my bucket list. So you have Magda like wrapping this, this dress on, she ties <laughs> it to the banister, flips off, and then just like descends with like so much grace. And I'm like, I want to learn how to descend from a balcony buy my dress looking like that. That's up there with like cracking safes. Like I have like a, like a bond bucket list and, and there's a jetpack on that list as well. But I always thought that it was like this, this beautiful track, but it doesn't fully make sense in terms of like the overall chronology of, of the film. Like he falls yeah. in love with somebody else who is the actual octopusy. So, uh, so yeah. And, and, and to make this even more powerful, not to brag, but, I've been to Udaipur and, 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 and you've been at those hotels and, you know, where they had dinner and, you know, by the pool and all, you know, it, it just makes it even all the more realistic. It's amazing. It's an amazing city and amazing people. So mm -hmm. I, I hope, I wish for you at some point in your life that you get a chance to visit there. It's quite amazing. Well, let's, um, let's have a uh, listen to this cue ourselves. This, Again, it's from the film Octopussy. The cue is called That's My Little Octopussy, and it's written by John Barry. Thank you. 
I know we focused on uh, on James Bond films, but uh, you already mentioned Arnold Schwarzenegger and and some other action films. I'm kind of curious. Um, are there other action films that you that you like that maybe you've studied and uh, and that you follow and maybe talk about in some of your uh, classes? Absolutely. So um, I have written an entire book about Chinese warrior women. So I have this entire other area of expertise looking at at specifically Chinese women as action stars. But I have a profound, deep love for like Hong Kong martial arts action films. Ah. And I, what I love about them is the creativity and the collaboration that takes place on set. The fact that you have actors and choreographers coming together and sometimes even just like negotiating the movements that are taking place. It is more of a collaborative endeavor. And you have these great action star choreographers who are martial arts practitioners. And so they understand how bodies move. And so they understand how bodies should interact with each other and then how to film them in the most effective way. And what we saw in the late 1990s, early 2000s, was not just a crossover of Chinese film talent to Hollywood, but it was the Chinese filmmaking talent coming over to Hollywood. So someone like Wu Ping Yoon, you may have never heard him of him, but if you've watched The Matrix and Charlie's Angels and Kill Bill, you'll know that he and his brother worked in various capacities on, on these early films. And so I think it's just, it's really important to understand that cinema and film is this global interconnected um, cultural entity. And I love drawing attention in my classes to how this, this intersection of, of these different traditions, these cultural flows can actually work to benefit different like cinema systems themselves. And then on top of that, I've studied just like Hollywood action women who are kind of awesome. So. Yeah. Now. All right. It's been what? Almost 40 years since I've been to college (laughs) and I'm thinking to myself, gosh, what I would have given to attend a class that said, we're going to study women in film or we're going to study film or this. I mean, (laughs) it sounds like a dream come true. I would love to have to have taken a class like that. So what, um, what are some of the topics that you cover in some of the classes that you teach and, and what kind of students does it draw? Does it, does that make sense? Kind of what I'm asking? Yeah. So my courses are in the women's and gender studies department, but they're also cross-listed with film and media studies department. So I get students with a background in WGS and with a background in FMS, but I also get students who are just really interested in these topics and want to take my class. And so we study everything from aspects of genre. So understanding what a genre is, how action films work, what is expected image-wise, body-wise, gender-wise. And then we also talk about aspects of identity, right? Uh, Representation of gender, race, sexuality, nationality, and ethnicity, issues of ability, and how those are represented. And then, of course, how they change over time. That's my big thing. You know, I study, whether I'm studying action women or James Bond, when you think about James Bond, we're hitting the 60th anniversary next year. That's a great subset of text to study where you can really see the growth, the evolution of gender politics, geopolitics, racial politics. You can see the development of cinema. You can see the development of sound effects across special effects. You can see how how they were precursors to the, the development of blockbuster action filmmaking and how they were then afterwards responding to trends. Like it's a great set of films to study. And I love doing transtextual analysis and trans means across the prefix. So it just means finding meaning making and connection across texts. 
And that's Jesus. what I love to do. Jeez, you sold me. Man, I wish I could take one of your classes. <laughs> okay, I, I love it. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I, I love it. I love the way you described it. That's terrific. Um, let's take a weird left turn, I guess, if you will, for a moment. Um, most of the cues, well, all the cues basically that okay. we were going to play for today's program have to do with James Bond. But there was one you mentioned that was a little bit off the, the beaten path. Uh, the cue is called No Man's Land, and it's from a film called uh, Wonder Woman. And you had a particular affinity for this particular cue, and I, I thought it was important that we include that today. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, why you wanted to include that in your list of favorites. So like many people, I was really taken in by the movie Wonder Woman, the original uh, one that came back okay. uh, a few years ago, not Wonder Woman 1984, the one that predates it, the original one, starring Gal Gadot and directed by Patty Jenkins. And for me, this particular cue is focusing in on a key scene and it's called No Man's Land. And sometimes when I feel like I'm disempowered, yeah. I will just put on this particular scene because I do find it empowering. Um, and what it is, is you have Wonder Woman and, oh, Chris Pine's character, whatever his name is, um, is basically telling her, like, this is a particular zone. No man can cross it. We're sort of at a stalemate and people are suffering and there's nothing that we can do about it. And this is when Wonder Woman says, well, I'm going to do something about it. And I love the way that the music defines these actions. So we have... Um, Th these string that like sort of strings these violins of some sort uh, but they have like the, they're very quiet and they're very separated so it's only like a note here that's drawn out and a note there and you this is happening when she puts her head down and I think she puts on her tiara or headpiece uh, and it continues as she climbs the ladder and then we start to get some percussion as she's taking those steps and we see her shield after her cloak comes down and then the second she steps out and we get this either the long shot um, or a medium long shot. So either from the knees up or feet up as she's walking into the battlefield, that is where the brass starts to kick in. And it's these, these notes that are, that are coming out. And it's sort of this melodic rise um, of, of, of the instrumentation as she's walking forward and gaining steam. And then you have this layering of these, these strings that are emphasizing every step that she's taking. And you see that it's, it's not just her intention that is strengthening and swelling with the music, but but it's the belief of the men mm -hmm. behind her saying, holy crap, what is she doing? And, and Chris Pine's character wanting to give her backup. And the music keeps layering on and on as their belief in their ability to take out this particular enemy uh, uh, sort of moves forward. And you have a great shot of her behind the, um, the shield taking fire. And once the grenade explodes, then you get sort of almost like this explosion of a melody as she's able to leap mm -hmm. over and, and take out all of the the opponents and so anytime i feel as though like i'm feeling a little bit disempowered it's this notion that like yes i can do it and courage is something that builds and develops over time and sometimes it means just a belief in yourself and sometimes other people might get behind you but i've always felt that like the scene is meaningful yes gal gadot yes the imagery but it's the music that just like takes my emotions and pushes them along wow. and i well, believe in her because the once music again lisa has her. shown her uh, lack of knowledge on music um, uh, and, and describing this cue which i'm <laughs> delighted now to play because i'm really excited about it based on her description uh, again, it's called No Man's Land. It's from the film called Wonder Woman, and it's and I'm not familiar with this composer, so I'm interested in hearing it. 
It's by composer Rupert Gregson Williams. Let's have a listen.
Okay, I've been having a little bit of fun and joking with you about not knowing a lot about music, and yet your descriptions are amazing. I mean that, sincerely. Your descriptions are very intuitive and amazing about what you're hearing. So I'm I'm curious. I, I, maybe it's a ridiculous question, but... So, yes. Are you a fan Here's of film music? I may have never seen the film, but I listen to film music like... Like I just go on YouTube and listen to like different sort of soundtracks and film music because I find it inspiring. And usually it's from action films and like <clears throat> what what would we consider Lord of the Rings? Like sort of like fantasy. I mean, that entire soundtrack of Lord of the Rings is just straight fire. Yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. just saying that. Um, but it's just I found I find it so incredibly inspiring and empowering. And sometimes lyrics distract me. Like they, they, they move my train of thought towards thinking about the lyrics. What I like about film music is I can get lost in the emotion and in, in the intention, and I can allow my own thoughts to be creative. And so maybe I can work through something theoretical that's just not happening. Maybe I can get inspired. Like before I listen, before I go speak on podcasts and stuff, I listen to soundtrack music in order to get me all pumped up and to get my emotions aligned in, in the proper way. And so, yeah, I just, I, I, I like, I like. I like this type of music. <laughs> have you ever, I, 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 this is going to lead to another question I have. have, and I've had the opportunity to do this. By any chance, have you had an opportunity to watch a, a rough cut of a film? I don't think I've ever, exp- like I've done music? watch-alongs for the, I'm, I'm on a podcast called James Bond and Friends and we've done watch-alongs and when we watch it, we have no sound on so that we can talk to each other but, but over I'm, it. But, but I mean, you know, actually watching a film that has, you know, I mean, real time watching it, and there hasn't been any music laid into it yet because it's, it's I mean, it's so flat. It's amazing how, oh. how, it, how it's so flat and because I have seen that. Uh, and, and you see a scene that has no music backing it up. Sometimes a scene doesn't need it, by the way. We can talk about that. But there are times when music really is needed. And, yeah. and it's amazing what it adds to a scene in a, in a film. So I, 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 that's why I was kind of curious. I don't know if you, you should try and watch if you get, if you have an opportunity, watch a film that hasn't been, you know, there hasn't been a music track laid left and you'll be amazed how dead it is. I will say there's <laughs> just, just one exception because I'm at looking all. at my movie case, which is in front of me. There's a movie called Haywire uh, starring Gina Carano. And I think it was directed by Soderbergh. I okay. could be making that up. Um, but like, it's really supposed to emphasize mixed martial arts and she's a mixed martial artist and the action sequences don't have any music. Mm. And what it does is if you're so used to listening to cinematic music, especially during action sequences, usually it has like a quick pace. It's designed to get your pulse racing. It's supposed to emphasize the kinesthetics that are taking place on screen. And then you have like this music that is like moving your pulse and it's this overall experience for your body. But in that film, the lack of sound actually emphasizes the brutality of her fight sequences um, with all these different men and how, how like it, it emphasizes like the grunts and the slapping of bodies and, and crashing Bingo. into. Yeah. And yes. but it's probably the only film that I've seen that has done it in a way that is intentional and actually really effective. I, I, I couldn't agree more, which is one of the things, and I don't know if John Barry had a choice in this, but there were several times in the in the James Bond series where there were times when he could have put music in a fight scene or whatever it was that was going on. But actually, he chose, or the director, I don't know who, no, we're just going to let the, 
the sounds of the scene, the organic what's going on in the scene, you know, drive it. We don't need music to kind of make it extra special. Yeah. And, and I loved that. I, I think economy use of music is actually just as important as, a, as you know, in-your-face music, if that makes sense. Intentional. And I, and I feel the same yeah. way even about, like, physical action sequences. Like, having an action sequence just to fill up that time that doesn't necessarily work for me. Like it should be intentional action. And then you can emphasize, like not every moment has to be an action, but if you're going to give me action, give me good action, give it to me for a reason, shoot it well, choreographic well, give me, you know, an appropriate soundtrack, but don't just overdo it because if you overdo it, I'm not going to have the same type of, 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 of reaction to it. We need spaces to pause and to digest yeah. to, it was interesting as we were preparing for this, I was listening to African rundown from Casino Royale as well. And like, even in that soundtrack, there are pauses where like the, it's, it's this, this chase sequence that is happening and there's all this percussion that's going off, except when there are these moments, right. Where there's a, there's a jump happening or, or a different type of moment. And it's just sort of like, it's almost silence or it's like a violin string that's just being held. And, and it's not even like me catching my breath. Those are the moments where I found that I was holding my breath. Like yeah. it was having that, that impact where I was like, it's like we're running and then we're like, <gasps> what's going on? And then like running on. And I thought it was so incredibly effective in the way that it was, the way that that's, that music is laid out to have that type of reaction. And I think it goes down to your point of intentionality, like doing it for a particular reason, for a particular effect, rather than just giving us every single instrument that's possible <laughs> and like just shaking our roots. I love this idea of intentionality. So I think it's a brilliant point. Yeah. And, and what a great segue, because one of the cues you chose was African rundown. <laughs> From Casino Royale, and you've already described exactly the way you like it. And it's a, uh, you're you're right. Sometimes I, I, these days, I almost think that composers feel like they have to compete with sound effects, mm. so they got to make the music really loud. But uh, I, and, and I don't know if this is an example of that, but, uh, but but I thought it was extremely effective, and I love the fact that you chose this. So uh, let's have a listen for ourselves again. The the cue is called African uh, Rundown. It's from the film Casino Royale, and it's written by. David Arnold.
Okay. Now, you, you may not like this question. <laughs> I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, have the Bond films lost their way? Ooh. Does that make sense when I'm asking? Yeah. Um, I understand the question, and I actually think the answer is yes. And here's the reason why. So I watched Casino Royale. I hated it at first. Love it now. So yeah, I hated it because yep, it was, I was different. The same way. I was the same yeah. way. I reacted to it. And I'm like, what the heck is this? And then the more that I studied it, the more that I watched it, the more that I think it's actually a beautiful, like it's beautifully shot. The music is on, on point for it. Absolutely. There's emotion. Like that is a great standalone film, whether or not you like James Bond. Absolutely. But I feel as though the rest of them have become incredibly repetitive and stale. And I will say this, I've watched other films in the late 2000s and 2010s that feel more like James Bond films than the Bond films themselves. And it makes me a little bit sad. The, the Bond franchise right now is lacking the humor and the lightness and the gadgets and, and all of sort of like the, the wonder that came from Bond. You know, Bond going into different places and having great technology and kind of being amazing and doing great stunts and just being awe-inspiring. That is part of like the action, the adventure, the spectacle that I think that is missing when we go down such a dark, melodramatic, everything is personal type of, of direction. And it's really sad when I watch like The Kingsman, which I, I mean, first of all, just saying at the end of The Kingsman, it's actually a woman who was the Kingsman who was then sentenced <laughs> to space and like was away from the climax. So I always have to point that out that I don't like that part of The Kingsman, just throwing it out there. But that film has almost like comic book inspired action. It has larger than life characters. It has an emphasis on fashion and it has a brightness, even though the action on it is actually quite graphic. Uh, but it's just, it's one of those things where I watch it. I'm like, that feels more to me like James Bond than what we are getting from Eon. So I would love to see a return um, or a pivot back after the Daniel Craig era. I think this is probably his last one. Where do we go from here? I would love it if anybody from Eon would like to talk to me. <laughs> the direction. I am here. I will consult. I have thoughts and feelings. Um, I have access to the Bond fan community. I know what different people are thinking. Let me help. <laughs> it sounds to me like you, you um, and you might be a good conduit for this because, because I think you, uh, I'm, I'm guessing you can confirm or deny. Sure. Um, you want a connection to the past mm -hmm. while still recognizing that the world's a different place now. Is, does that make sense? Yeah. And you can have a connection with the past without remaking the past. Like this idea that we're going to have to do a reference to this film and then we got to throw this in because this is what happened. There's a way to recognize the essence of the past and the energy and the lightness and, you know, the overarching feeling without actually having to just constantly go back and throw back. I don't want to say that that's lazy, but it feels kind of lazy to me. <laughs> well, I mean, just, but Bond was a chauvinist, let's face it, as were most manly men in the mm -hmm. 50s and the 60s, right? I mean... Sure, but Bond also changes in many ways over time. So the character has evolved over time. And it, it is my question that I really put out there is like, 
we're talking, for instance, a lot about sexual consent. And I think affirmative consent is really important. I think what we showcase in our media sends messages to people about what is considered like appropriate con- con- conduct um, in, in a film. And so I look back on the James Bond films, I see issues of, of lacking of consent and some, some sexual violence. And I look at it and say, it was never okay. This was there in the past. It was never okay. But then I pivot and look forward and say, we don't need to include this component moving forward. If you want to make billions and billions of dollars off of Bond <laughs> and, and reach the widest possible audience, recognize that there are women who are fans of this franchise, who want to support it, and who feel oftentimes really uncomfortable watching these scenes. And there are a lot of men who feel uncomfortable watching those scenes too. And is it really necessary to include that component moving forward? Or is it about Bond just being a really great hero and, and, and having strong women around him who feel valued um, and, and validated? Yeah. I, I, I lean towards that. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Makes sense. The, um, uh, one of the cues you chose, and it's a favorite of mine as well. Ooh. It's interesting. It was uh, uh, the last opportunity that, that John Barry had to score a, uh, a James Bond film. And I, I think it was a terrific effort on his part. Mm-hmm. Uh, the cue you uh, chose was called Hercules Takes Off. Uh, from the film The Living Daylight. So talk to us a little bit about why you wanted to choose that as one of your favorites. So I would say that The Living Daylights has one of the best Bond soundtracks. Just throwing it out there. We can debate that on social media, but I actually really like this entire soundtrack. And what I like about this song is that it is a faster and more dynamic version of the title track sung by AHA. So I'm not really compelled by AHA's version of it, but this version I'm into. And you have like this this rapid beat in the background that's so very 80s. I love 80s stuff. So (laughs) it sounds like it's 80s oriented, but it also sounds kind of like a ticking clock emphasizing sort of the timeliness of the actions taking place. There's a bomb that is going to go off. And so your actions have to be heroic, but they have to be quick. Like you you need to get this this, uh, plane off of the ground. And then you have the use of brass coding the actions of Bond as being heroic. Uh, I'm never going to have a singing career. Uh, But it's just, it's, it's so like... The, the, the melody itself, it, it is so incredibly positive. And to me, it sounds so incredibly heroic. And then you have like a layering of this brass with other instruments that are heightening and elevating uh, the sound. Once you start adding in like violins and stuff like that and, and layering it and thickening it out, it just, it just makes me support the plight that I'm seeing. And then you have this punctuation of these like, like bump, these types of brass notes throughout that are just pushing me forward. It's creating a sense of dynamism in the score. It's elevating my pulse. And so I just love the the pace, the flow, the feel. Um, And I'm just so into the actions on screen, not because they're, I mean, it's literally Bond just like letting a plane go up in the air. Again, this is sort of like James Bond walking down a ladder, James Bond flying a plane, but it's this music that is making it and coding it as being incredibly heroic, noble, but also it's time sensitive. So we need to get this, this particular mission done. So that's why Jeepers. I like Hercules taking off. <laughs> Cheapers. I mean, are you, I, I need you to describe my favorite cues. I mean, you do a better job than I ever could. I mean, it, it, it's fabulous. I, I totally concur. It's fabulous. And it's, and again, this is another example. If you want to, Hey, turn the volume down and watch this scene. It's boring. It's not nearly <laughs> as effective as it is when there's the music there. So let's, 
Let's have a listen ourselves. This is, a, again, the cue is called Hercules Takes Off. It's from the film The Living Daylights, and it's written by John Barry. Okay, to, to kind of switch gears a little bit, what's um, what's in your future? What uh, what do you have a, a plan down the pike, uh, as it were? In terms of work? Yeah. Oh, gosh, I've got lots of Bond stuff coming out. So, um, Is it right only now, just Bond stuff or other stuff? No. So I have two anthologies coming out on James Bond, one with Christoph Lindner called Resisting James Bond, and it's looking at the Daniel Craig era. And, and different sort of representations of oppression. And then I have one with Klaus Dodds called Global James Bond, and it's looking at how the world is represented in the James Bond franchise, but also how local filmmakers from around the world actually made their own versions of James Bond. So I've got those two books with a whole bunch of contributors working on it. And then I have another series of books I'm working on. Um, one is called Screening Me to Rape Culture in Hollywood. That's coming out in March next year. Mm -hmm. And it's looking at, um, in the wake of the Me Too movement, what, yep. can we look back at Hollywood and see, um, and sort of trace some of these ideas and representations across genre. And we're working on a spinoff book called Streaming Me Too, looking at this particular topic in relation to the television industry and streaming services in the U.S. So in other words, other than that, you've got nothing going on. Nothing else going on. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Like balancing four books at the same time is, yeah, I mean, I don't, 
I don't My know what's goodness. wrong with me. That's that's really ambitious. Like that's a, that's a lot. <laughs> that's a lot. To, to yeah. say the least. That's a lot. But I but I applaud you for that. So so how do people um if people are interested in kind of you know seeing what you've got going on, if they want to follow you or those sorts of things, would you what would you recommend and how they uh, keep in touch with that, what you've got going on? So you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, Dr. Lisa Funnel, two N's and two L's in Funnel. Um, I think my website's lisafunnel.com. You can find me on Amazon if you want to see any of my books. Uh, But yeah, feel free to to follow me. I try my best to tweet and post regularly, but as you can tell, I'm also very busy with a lot of book projects. (laughs) So I have to just split my time accordingly. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> folks let me tell you something this woman is is a delight she's so bright and and intelligent and and really gives a different perspective on on action films but also on you know if you're interested in james bond as i am uh gives a wholly different perspective and as you can tell from her descriptions of the cues that we chose today i mean she she'll say that she doesn't understand music but she does <laughs> And so it, that was just terrific. Lisa, look, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed talking to you. I, I hope you've enjoyed it as well. This has been so much fun. And I will say this, you know, I specialize in visual representations, but the visual in film is always defined by the sound in film. And I love a new challenge. And so coming on here and thinking through the way that music really amplifies the images that we see has been fun for me. I, I like being challenged and I like challenging myself to adopt a different lens and see films in a different way. So this was a great opportunity and I was happy to do it. Oh, excellent. Thank I'm so glad to hear that. Thanks, Lisa, again. We, we appreciate you taking the time to, uh, to join us today. Uh, again, I want to thank our, our patrons for uh, for those of you that support us. By the way, uh, Lisa will be sharing a little bit of extra bonus material with our patrons here in a little bit. Uh, and But I, I want to thank all of you for listening to the program today. I hope you found it uh, interesting and insightful and heard some great music. And it's a... Uh, it's my pleasure to bring it to you. There's only one thing left to say, and that's simply this. My name is Frank R. Wilson. My time is up. I thank you for yours. And thanks for listening to What's the Score?